a Lion Fury production. Welcome to Wolf and Cub Film Club, a film review show with a twist. What's the twist, you ask? Well, it's me and me dad. He's the wolf, and I'm the cub. There's another thing. We're both filmmakers. Wolf, Steve Thomas, makes documentaries and is a film school senior lecturer. And Cub, that's me, Danny Thomas, am also a writer and an actor. So grab a chock top, sit back and relax as we discuss two films per episode, often with a common theme between them. On this episode, we have a medical theme. In part one, we'll examine a narrative feature, Sound of Metal, the story of a drummer in freefall as he begins to lose his hearing. And in part two, we'll dissect a doco, The English Surgeon, a glimpse into the life of a neurosurgeon situated in Ukraine and the overwhelming dilemmas he faces in his profession. Enjoy the show. I'm turning my page turning so there won't be any noise. (laughs) All right, guys. Well, today we've got two films on the cards and one is a narrative feature. We've never done a narrative feature before. Wolf and Cub, first narrative, uh, which is a film that I've recommended to Wolf, Sound of Metal, directed by Darius Marder and starring Riz Ahmed, Olivia Cook, and Paul Rachi. And it's essentially the story of a drummer who begins to free fall in a way as he loses his hearing, begins to lose his hearing. And I can't speak highly enough of the film. I really enjoyed so many aspects of it. So I'm very keen to hear your views wolf particularly if you have any criticism so what did you think oh i thought you were going to tell us what you thought <laughs> <I'll stop. laughs> now that's okay but we should also point out to our beloved listener whoever <laughs> he or she may be that the theme for tonight was is like medical films yeah or films with a med- medicine or medical related theme. And so Sound of Metal is about deafness. We're going to move on later to um, brain surgery. Not rocket science, brain surgery. So though we're doing a narrative and documentary, there is definitely a connection between the two, particularly in a medical sense. But yeah, there's a a nice connection between them. So that's our theme for uh, for this show. It's a bit of a medical one. Yeah. I think Sound of, I mean, Sound of Metal is not a film that I would have picked up and watched, but because you obviously suggested it, I found it um, really interesting. And actually, I mean, it's a, let's face it, it's a long film. It's two hours and a few minutes its pace is um snail like but you know I, I don't object to that generally i think it i think it could have been shorter but it it's really it takes you into the subjective world of this young guy rez who's a um, heavy metal drummer. Well, the character's, the character's name's Ruben, but the actor is oh, Riz. Oh, sorry. Yeah. 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 
the actor is an interesting guy because he's English, Pakistani, or Pakistani, British, um, and one of the few Muslim actors to kind of start making it in the mainstream. And Olivia Cook's English as well, I think. But it's an American film that takes place in America. So the heavy metal drummer suddenly goes deaf quite suddenly in terms of film time anyway. And um, has, he's in a band with his girlfriend, Lou, and they're faced with this dilemma of what does he do and Ruben wants to just continue and kind of watch her lips and drum to her lips and, you know, just keep going. But Lou realises that that's not a possibility. And in the end, Ruben ends up in a community run by deaf people for deaf people. Um, He has to face the decision of Shelley stay in the community and, of course, to stay in the community, he has to give up all contact with the outside world, including Lou, his girlfriend. And Lou really pushes for this and Ruben's ambivalent about it but eventually gets into the idea and the interesting thing for me was I found that as he learnt I mean well it's run by this guy Joe Paul Ratchie is it who's also he's an interesting actor because he grew up apparently I've found this out since he grew up as a listening, as a hearing person, but with deaf parents. So he learned sign language and everything as he grew up. And in the film, he plays a deaf person who can lip read, which is a nifty device for the film, because if somebody wasn't lip reading and speaking, no one would be speaking, you know, apart from Ruben. Um But what interested me is that as Ruben becomes involved in this deaf community and he goes to the deaf school and he starts to learn sign language, you kind of go through that experience with him, don't you? And you actually start to learn some of the basic signing, for example, like when they want to applaud, they don't clap their hands, they kind of wave them. And so you begin to pick up a little bit of the sign language. And I guess the one of the main things about the film, and you would comment about this, is the way they've dealt with the soundtrack because it constantly moves between the objective experience that we have of the world where we hear things to the subjective experience of being inside Ruben's head where where he can only hear things as a kind of it's like being in a bathtub underwater or something. You can only hear things very faintly. And you get drawn into his world and into his dilemma, but you also get drawn into the world of deaf deaf culture, if you like. Um, So that, you know, that there are other things to say about the way the film develops. 
But is that what strikes you? I mean, I guess your immediate connection is because of your drumming background and worries that you've had at various times that that might lead to hearing loss in in the long term. So you probably identify with the character. Would that be right? That's true. Yeah, it was a very, like you say, it was a very immersive sound design. It brought you into it from a a sound perspective and it's it's i think it picked up an oscar for its sound design because it it's so effective as you say in bringing you into his world and the the abstract way of hearing that he's suddenly got to get or not hearing that he's suddenly got to get used to but for me yeah it absolutely resonated uh personally one because when i was born i had some hearing issues pretty soon after birth as you might recall with the whooping cough as a result um, of whooping cough yeah so yeah. as a result of whooping cough i think i blew out my my eardrum and my hearing was affected and it wasn't looking good but after a a while it pretty much came back and of course i i know very little about that experience but you know at a developmental age that's something interesting about my past and yeah having been in bands I was quite reckless when I was young, not not reckless in a sense of just not thinking about it, but I had real trouble trying to use earplugs and it really, it would take away from, from the drumming experience I was having. So I just used to want guitars and stuff as loud as possible, but then further down the line I got filtered earplugs, which helped let a, a certain level of sound in. But when I had those filtered earplugs, fitted and my ears tested the doctor was literally like you're okay now but it might deteriorate when you get older so it's been something that's been in the back of my mind having a lot of exposure to very loud uh, band noise Um, so I guess that's what drew me to the film straight away Uh, you know the drumming aspect and was quite visceral in that sense. And then um, to me, it's as much as it's a film about, you know, deterioration of, of hearing it's, it's a film about loss of identity. And this is what Ruben's trying to hold on to. He's trying to hold on to the, to the guy that he is. And that starts to unravel and he's clinging to this, identity and it's about well how can he face losing this losing who he losing the core of who he is but coming to grips in this new new realm yeah yeah no i think that's right and i think it makes it makes you think about you know if if something prevented you if something prevented me from doing something that I really love doing you know how um, frustrating and debilitating and depressing and everything that would be and you and you see Ruben go through that I mean you know they live in a bus and he smashes the bus up he's so frustrated and he gets, he develops paranoia. He thinks his girlfriend's, you know, going to leave him. And 
he goes through those various stages. What's interesting is that Joe, who runs the deaf community, you know, has this philosophy that, and, and he writes it on a board, you know, Ruben's job is to learn to be deaf. You know, it's that acceptance of deafness, which ties in with the idea that deafness is not a disability, you know, that we should not pity deaf people and treat them as disabled, but we should treat them as having their own communication methods and their own culture. And what he tries to get Ruben to do is to learn to be still. And, of course, that's not what Ruben wants. Ruben wants to get behind that drum kit and thrash away like he did before and retain that identity. So I guess the question then is, well, I suppose we give a spoiler alert and talk about, you know, how the film develops from here. So that that brings um, Ruben to the possibility of new, the new technology of cochlear implants as a way of dealing with deafness. And this is kind of against the philosophy of the community, of the deaf community that he's living in, because their philosophy is deafness, you know, is not a disability to be fixed it's a culture to be, you know, entered and lived in. And Ruben, Ruben gets into that for a while. Like, I think it's really interesting. There's that moment, do you remember that moment where he has that moment of communication with the deaf kid who's at the top of a slide in the playground and he's at the bottom and they start tapping the metal slide and they can each feel the other one doing the tapping. You get this sense of connection. It's a beautiful then scene. He, yeah. Yeah. Then he starts to learn the sign language. And then he starts to teach them how to drum, even though they're deaf. So he, he kind of gets into this community. And then Joe says to him, look, you've become important. I want you to stay here and be a worker in the community. And that, for me, is like the crossroads that Ruben comes to in the film. Do I accept this deafness and stay in the community and and help the community grow? Or do I go for a cochlear implant and hope that technology can get me back to drumming? He's also dealing with another disease, which is addiction. Yeah, I don't, I don't quite get how the addiction ties in with the deafness. It's portrayed that the the two of them, they they have a history of addiction, and they perhaps met through that experience of addiction rehabilitation. So that's always in the background, in a way. It's like, is this new is this new thing gonna unravel the old the old addiction stuff 
So it's always sitting on the precipice as if, is this enough to throw him back to? And the Paul Rauchy, Rauchy character actually in one scene says to me, you're, you're, you're in that, at that crossroad points point you're talking about. He says, you're speaking like an addict now. And he has to draw, he has to draw a hard line and send Ruben away. So there's this double, this dub, double thing is he's got, he's got the past addiction thing going on and he's, and then there's this new, new health dilemma, but also just like you say, his, his drumming and sound is his thing. So that's been taken away from him. Yeah. It's when he asks Joe for money, he asks to borrow money to help pay for the cochlear implant. And that's when Joe says, you're behaving like an addict. And, um, I have to ask you to leave the community. And so Ruben leaves the community and he gets the cochlear implant, which is a very imperfect solution to deafness, um, or for his particular deafness anyway, because it, uh, you know, uh, it's explained in the film that a cochlear implant isn't like a hearing aid. It doesn't magnify what you can hear it sort of tricks the brain into thinking that it can hear. But when he gets the implant in, you, you as an audience, are taken into here again inside his head. And what he hears is a very kind of artificial, imperfect, you know, um, repetition of reality and you feel you feel that discomfort through this through the soundscape you feel the discomfort on the thing that was supposed to supposed to heal him and it's almost like joe knew that already you know if he was going to go down that path it actually was not the solution or the the way the way to acceptance yeah, and so Reuben then, he has the cochlear implant and he goes back to find Lou, who's in the meanwhile, her career has begun to take off in other directions and there's a kind of culmination where they meet but they both recognise that they've kind of... Because she's traditionally a self-harmed and he notices that when he talks to her about getting the band back together, she starts to rub her arm again and he realises immediately that those old addictions, I suppose, are going to kind of return if they try and recreate what they had before. I think it's a beautiful scene when they get together again because there's a there's an unspoken thing between them and it's played out in an unspoken way. It's not, let's have a discussion about our future. You can see them trying, but they have this understanding that they've moved in different directions or particularly she's, she's moved on and it's, it's done in such a, a nuanced way in an unspoken way. 
which is pretty cool. Although they they do acknowledge to one another that, that, you know, he says, you saved my life, and she says, yeah, but you saved my life. Um, So they do kind of acknowledge that bond that they had, but it's a bond that, you know, time and circumstance has now kind of broken. Yeah, just from a from a technical perspective, there's a few things I wanted to touch on. I mean, um, the performance side of things, that's not so much technical, but it's wonderfully performed and just the, the skills that Riz Ahmed had to learn for a long period of time leading up to the film. He had to learn how he hadn't drummed before. He had to learn sign language. He had to, was quite, he's, he's spoken of that as being quite an ominous task but he he had a fair period leading up to that but i think that sort of culminated in us in the scene with joe think where he's asking for the for the money or um but he's giving ruben's giving a long a long mono, monologue and he's quite desperate but at the same time he's signing it which shows how far he's come in terms of embracing this so he's he's in a he's in a desperate situation, but he's signing at the same time. I just thought that was played really wonderfully out. The other thing is it was shot on thirty five mil, so it was shot on film, and it was shot in chronological sequence. So Riz Ahmed said that really helped him the fact that it was just chronological, and it brings about a lot of ish, you know, the issue of shooting on film. And one of the issues with shooting on film is the dailies, the daily footage had to get taken to a laboratory. So it wasn't easily accessible like digital. So as much as Riza mid perhaps wanted to watch the dailies, he couldn't with the director. So in a way he had to trust and couldn't monitor so much you know, daily performances and stuff. So this shooting on film had a whole heap of knock-on effect to to the production as a whole. And I've often I've often had this discussion with filmmakers and stuff about, you know, the digital versus film thing. And I I think these days just the pra- practicalities and the budgetary stuff around shooting on film when you can perhaps in a digital sense grade the digital stuff to look very similar, it poses a whole heap of questions. But what's interesting to me is in the process, in in the actual shooting using film, and it's similar to making music in a way, whether you're recording, because I've experienced the old school recording on tape and and then digital, it's a similar thing. The state when you're recording to tape reels, the stakes are up because if you fuck it up, you're in danger of losing tape. And so it, it puts the stakes up through the whole production, whether it be a film or an album. So I thought it was really interesting that it was shot on 35 mil. And I wondered your thoughts on that. And I also have a, have a memory. And I think this has influenced why I'm interested in, in this shooting on film stuff is when I was a kid and I was in the editing studio with you, I just remember all the, 
all the strips of film hanging up that you had to manually splice together. And I was trying to get my head around as a kid this process of actually sticking film pieces together to get the cuts. And there was a real craft to it. And I, I, I've thought about that over the years just as I've used editing software and stuff. It's like, well, imagine you had to manually splice this stuff together and, and it adds a whole different element of the, of the craft aspect to it. And I, I appreciate that because I witnessed that when I was a kid. Yeah, well, it amazed me as well. That pre- I mean, I'm, I shot two, two, two docos on film, but only one of them were actually edited on film. That was Black Man's Houses. And the way that Uri had to organise his bins with, as you say, strips of film hanging up. And sometimes, you know, if he wanted to cut two frames from a shot, he would have to hang up, you know, one inch of film separately and it was all labelled. It all had edge numbering and, yeah, it was a heck of a carry-on, really. Interestingly, that that language is still used. You know, you have bins in your edit software where you put your footage. We still call a cut, you know, the, the transition between two shots. We call it a cut, although we physically don't cut it anymore. You know, all that film language is still used, even with digital which is quite interesting. Like I say, from a budgetary sense, it just doesn't sound practical anymore. But from a filmmaking process, I think it makes a lot of sense. So, Well, I think what, what's interesting is what you said about shooting, that the film uh, Sand of Metal was shot chronologically because in a budgetary sense, one normally shoots a film by location, you know, all, all because that's the cheapest way to do it. Everything that happens in so-and-so's house, you shoot all at the same time, and then everything that happens in the other person's house, you shoot all that at the same time, and then you intercut it. And, of course, the actors have to have the ability to psychologically put themselves backwards and forwards in time and, you know, drum up the... I couldn't do it, but I can I can see that shooting chronologically would be perhaps much more expensive, but a much kind of better process for the actor to go through. That's true, particularly if you have you have a location at the start and at the end that are the same, and then it's like, well, you shoot the start and then you and then you don't you don't do it all in the one hit. You have to come come back to it. Um, yeah, it's a tricky. It's a tricky thing. I just wondered if you, what would your preference now is obviously, obviously digital. Would you consider shooting on film again? Um, I'd love to shoot on film. I wouldn't. I, I. I don't think there would be any point on in editing on film. I'd love to shoot on film because, really, it still looks better. The the thing about what what shooting on film taught me because of the cost of the film and that you can only expose it once, unlike, 
you know, digital or where you can reuse your tape or your flashcard as many times as you want. It was expensive and it made you think very, very hard before you actually rolled the camera because you could just be wasting stock. And, you know, the budget allowed for a certain amount of film stock. And once that stock was used up, there was no money for any more. So you had to be really disciplined and you learned to be disciplined. Whereas today with my students, they haven't got that kind of imperative. They can shoot for as long and as much as they want and it doesn't cost them any more. And consequently, they don't think carefully about should I be rolling the camera or not. There's a tendency to just, I'll roll it and we'll deal with it later on. One of the worst saying, a saying that I've tried to avoid in my experience is we'll get it in post. And just as soon as, as soon as you hear, we'll, we'll fix it in post, we'll get it in post, you know, you know, I think it's about care. But uh, yeah, like you say, from a narrative perspective, it's similar in terms of doing takes. So if you've got endless amounts of takes, uh, the stakes aren't up in terms of let's really, whereas on film, it's absolutely time is money and the film's expense, the, the actual film is expensive. So it's like, well, are we going to do 12 takes? You know, it, it adds a similar, that's what I mean in the process. It, I think it would add a similar, I've seen it, it would add a similar um, uh, thought process to it, like you say. Yeah. The the other thing about shooting on film was, well, with 16 mil anyway, I mean, you would rarely shoot a documentary on 35. A roll of film was 400 feet, which is 10 minutes, I think. Um, So every 10 minutes you had to stop filming and the clapper loader had to load a new roll of film into the camera and there'd be like, you you could be in the middle of a, an interview or something interesting happening and you'd have to stop, you know, and try and pick it up again 10 minutes later. And that, that was really difficult. At, at least you don't have to do that now. I only had one experience on a set where they had to, I thought they had to change the reel, the film, and they, they had to do it in the dark. Like someone had a velvet cloth over their head and was splicing, is it the, the, the new end to the old end, I guess, so that the reel could, or whatever it was. But they were loading. They were loading a new roll or, or splicing or something and they, would, they literally were in a, in a dark <laughs> box and, you know, the, the pressure was on set and this person, you know, that's, that's a very different th- thing to just having a, a, a memory card. Yeah, yeah. I remember when we were shooting Harold in New York, Phil Bull, our friend, DOP friend, we shot this interview with, um, uh, it was an important interview, I forget the, the name of the guy. And then Phil came up to me and he said, I think I might have exposed that reel. And so I had to ask this guy who'd given up, you know, his morning, would you mind us doing the interview again? Because we we won't know until the film gets to the lab 
whether it's okay or not. Unfortunately, he was happy to do it again, but he could have spat the dummy and said, you know, fuck off. <laughs> so, you know, film film had its, had its difficulties, but it also had its advantages. It could be tricky to capture what he said in the first instance and then just replicate it again. That's the... Uh... But that could that could happen with digital as well, um, you know. If it's if if something happens in a in a digital sense, but yeah, it's in, interesting. Like you say, with with students students and stuff, it's a different it's a different approach. I, I appreciate that I, I have some knowledge of this world, both from music and film, and I, re, I really appreciate that experience I had as a kid because it just it's so clear in my mind, just the room filled with all the hanging, hanging strips of film and the manual labor involved in that. And the risk, if you're actually cutting it, of fucking it up. (laughs) It, It also meant that you had to think very carefully before you did an edit, before you put two shots together or, you know, because once you'd spliced it, then you had done splice it, and, you know. Whereas if you look at Premiere or Avid or whatever, it's so easy to swap shots around. You can cut a sequence 10 different ways in half an hour. And that's another problem that students have, you know. Suddenly they're going, I can't remember which way I edited it, you know, I can't remember which version is which or which version I like the best. They've got so many possibilities, whereas all that work in the old days had to be almost done in your head before you did it physically. Um, but in other ways, it's just fantastic using Premiere and going, well, let's try and cut it a different way or you know, and you can put it back together again. You can duplicate your cut and just change it. It's um, it it's so easy, you know. I get. I guess it comes. We've gone off on a very technical tangent, but that's cool. But I think it it also comes down to the image and what we were saying on a previous episode about. Well, we spoke about drones, but also I'm not sure how much we've touched on like very high definition stuff and you know when you watch t when you watch a high definition tv and the details it's almost so clear that it's it's too much but i guess with film it's almost like the warmth of a vinyl record and so when it when it comes down to just the look of the image you know, whether it's a grainy warmth of a vinyl record thing or whether it's a high-definition TV, it's about how you feel viewing that stuff. And personally, I just gravitate more towards the, the warmer stuff. And I think that's similar to what we were saying about the drones and the disassociation that it brings and the less intimacy. So it's just, a, I guess it's a stylistic choice. Yeah. Yeah. Well, you know, another thing about film is that because it was physically rolling through the camera, it has a kind of movement in the picture, which is a kind of rhythm. 
if if you watch a film, it just feels different to watching a video because a video is so just, you know, there is no movement in the picture unless you move the camera. Whereas a 16mm camera, and I'm assuming bigger cameras, because it's rolled, the film is rolling through the machine, it it has a kind of almost subliminal heartbeat to it. Um, and and you, you kind of lose that with digital as well. Yeah. Which, which I guess is a bit like, you know, people like vinyl because, you know, it can be a little bit scratchy and, you know, it's, it's more um, naturalistic, a naturalistic process. Naturalistic thing. I think that's the, that's the, yeah, what, what's taken, it needs to be taken into account stylistically. Yeah. But, you know, we're, we're, we're not going back to film because it's too expensive, <laughs> basically. But uh, back to what you're saying about, you know, the ability to to have options and stuff. With Sound of Metal, the director was also, I saw him in an interview saying they had shot a whole bunch of extra scenes as well that obviously hit the cutting room floor. But he said they had some some great scenes that could have been used that were quite difficult to cut. Um, so that whole process of deciding what goes in and out, but as you say, you felt it was a bit long <laughs> as it is. But he spoke of, you know, when they're in the in the van at the start and it's sort of showing their relationship a little bit and they're dancing and living their life in the van, they had a couple of extra scenes there, one, one which I think I would have appreciated because I have an issue with leaf blowers. I think they're the most useless invention known to man. Uh and they said they had a scene with a leaf guy with a leaf blower and, and Ruben goes out and cracks it, cracks it at him and tells him to turn the, the leaf blower. But that hit the cutting room floor. So there was obviously a lot of stuff that got cut. But, um, yeah, you perhaps felt it was too long anyway. Yeah, well, I think it was – it's interesting because I don't know, this seems to happen to me. I watched it twice because I knew – we were going to interrogate one another about it. (laughs) (laughs) And I actually found I got more out of it the second time I watched it because I was ready for the kind of pace and so on. And I was much more engaged in watching the actors and, and, and what was going on. But I think what I was left with and this is partly answered probably by the interview you saw. You know, I wondered why, why, why did what's the director's name again? Uh, Darius um, Mata. Yeah, why did Darius make this film? You know, it's not a kind of. It's big budget. It's thirty-five mil. It's got top-class actors. You know, the works. Why make a film about this? question about this kind of very undramatic in a way subject of deafness um, and he explains in the Q&A that I saw that his grandmother went deaf 
um, when he was a kid, he watched her go deaf and that she then learned sign language and turned her deafness, you know, into a positive kind of thing as he was growing up. And, and that, and it's dedicated at the end, I think, to Dorothy, you know, what, dedicated to Dorothy, yeah. who was his, yeah, who was his grandma. So that story has obviously stayed with him. The other thing is I read some comments on the net by an audiologist who'd watched the film. Ah, interesting. And he, yeah, well, he made two comments. One is that very rarely does one just go deaf overnight, as seems to happen to Reuben, that in the real world, deafness is something that creeps, tends to creep up on people, a bit like dementia and other illnesses. And there comes a point where you start to realise what's happening or other people start to notice and then, you know, do I do this or don't I do this? So that, that was one thing. And the other thing he said was that the film kind of, it paints the picture as if it's a dichotomy between having a cochlear implant or learning to be deaf. And in fact, this audiologist reckoned that it's not a kind of fork. It's not such a fork in the road that there are deaf communities that reject cochlear implants, but there are also deaf communities that accept cochlear implants, and there are people that choose to both learn sign language and have a cochlear implant. So it, it's not a kind of simple case of one versus the other, where I think in this movie it's used as a kind of dramatic device, this choice that Ruben feels faced with that he has to go one way or the other, and that he tries to go the other, the cochlear implant. But the end of the film implies that he accepts his deafness because this is the worst spoiler of all, I suppose. It's the (laughs) ultimate spoiler. (laughs) (laughs) He rips the cochlear implant out and is left sitting in silence on a park bench and the film just sits on his face and the credits roll, which is an interesting ending. Yeah, uh, and it's, but it's interesting you pick some stuff up the, the second time, second time round. Um, but, yeah, it's obviously not as black and white as one or the other. There's a whole lot of grey choices that that people can make as part of the deaf community. But I, I just found it a very immersive experience, particularly from sound. I found it a very Zen journey. I love the hero's journey type stuff. And like I say, this loss of identity, trying to hold on to who he thought he was, um, the, the struggles within, within that I found really awesome. And obviously it just was personally resonated from drumming and, and I like, I, I'm starting to like this slow, this slower cook way, way of doing things. I think that's appealing 
I don't mind this slower pace. I don't necessarily, I'm realizing that perhaps patience is a good thing. And I mean, this, this film is a lot about listening and I think listening is, is such an important skill, you know, in school, it's about reading and writing and talking, but there's not a lot of emphasis on how to listen. I mean, you have to listen, but it's no, how, how do you truly listen? And I, I think that's a big part of this film. So the, the Zen type stuff. Yeah. It's listening and it's watching because, you know, um, Reza Ahmed is, and, and Olivia Cook and Paul Ratchie, are faces that one could just look at forever. Do you know what I mean? It unfolds and it feels, it has a very documentary feel to it. And, and maybe that's partly the shooting in chronological order thing. Somehow it just feels like it flowed, not that you necessarily shoot docos chronologically either, but, yeah, the, the kind of use of sound and shunning of kind of music as a soundtrack and so on gives it um, that slow unfolding feel of, of, a doc, of a documentary in a way, uh, which was also quite interesting. There was a simplicity to it, and it was saying a lot, but there was a simplicity to it. And it wasn't trying to do. It was very clear what was going on in the in the in the plot. Yeah, there, there's um, a deceptive simplicity because I think that's. I saw the simplicity the first time I watched it, and the second time I began to get into the complexity of it. And of course, there's the politics as well. You know, I don't, I don't. The the film employs death uses deaf people or deaf actors, um, what the response of the deaf community has been to the film, I'd be interested to um, to know. I mean, I read the interview with the piece by the audiologist, but I haven't seen any pieces, you know, I haven't seen it reviewed in the deaf community magazine or whatever. Um, it would be interesting to know. Just to finish off, it's interesting in that, you know, you look at the poster and it's a drummer and it's called Sound of Metal and he's got tattoos. So if you saw it on that face value and just took it literally, you'd be like, okay, this is a film about a heavy metal drummer. So, you know, but it's still it still has managed to find its way into not just a drumming audience which i think is pretty cool yeah well that's that's interesting to hear i mean i haven't seen it on the movies here um but yeah the fact that it won an oscar and, and it obviously is kind of a mainstream hollywood film and in that sense very unusual mainstream hollywood film because you don't get a lot of Hollywood films that focus on that kind of subject matter um, and and subject matter that brings up uh, effects and reveals the culture of a, min you know, what we would call a minority group. 
in society who are generally ignored like blind people, I guess. So, yeah, it's, um, it's an interesting experience. Yeah, I'm very interested to hear if, if you have found any parallels between this and our next film. The parallel, well, yeah, the, the parallels are there in terms of what I suppose life is all about, which is facing dilemmas and moral questions and moral responsibilities and relationships. And choices. And choices. Yeah, choices. But will we have a short break before we... Stretch the legs, grab a drink, and we'll be back. Intermission. If you need to nip to the bathroom, restock the popcorn, or move seats because the bloke next to you is obnoxious, now's the time to do it. A quick word from our sponsor. Ah, we don't have one, but we're hoping to get one. Let's get into our second film in this double feature. So that brings us to our second film with the theme of medical stuff, and I'll allow you to introduce, please introduce it, Wolf. Well, thank you. This is, I reckon this rates as one of my all-time favourite documentaries, to be honest. Um, I've seen it a number of times, and interestingly, it's an English doco. It's called The English Surgeon, a play on the English patient, I guess, but it's called The English Surgeon. It's directed by a guy called Jeffrey Smith, who's English but now lives, happens to live in Castle, Maine, which is about an hour and a half's drive north of Melbourne. And he lives up there. And uh, he's been down to the VCA and we got on quite well. He hosted a screening of Freedom Stories up in Castle, Maine. I think he's a fantastic filmmaker. Um, and I suppose that's kind of having met him and talked to him about the making of The English Surgeon has kind of, in, it's only increased my kind of, admiration for the film so it's it's a doco a featured doco about a brain surgeon but he's no ordinary brain surgeon well is there any such thing as an ordinary brain surgeon one might wonder but henry marsh is um he's an amazing character and i think he has what all good documentary participants need and that is the ability to just Almost not talk to himself, but articulate his thoughts, you know, constantly. Um, so he he's a great kind of confider in the camera. Um, but he's he's not an ordinary brain surgeon because although he he works in London, every year or every couple of years he's taken to travelling to Kiev in the Ukraine to work in a hospital there, which in National Health Service terms, even in National Health Service terms, is like stepping back into the medieval era. And he's mentoring this Ukrainian brain surgeon called Igor. Uh, And when he goes, he takes 
stuff with him to donate, like his old Bosch drill and his old drill bits, you know, which they can't afford in Ukraine. Um, he takes those and gives them to Igor. And then he sees patients in the hospital where Igor works and assesses them and conducts operations and, and so on. And it's really that that that's the kind of story. And it's set up, it's beautifully set up because you meet three main protagonists at the beginning of the film. Henry is one of them. Igor is another, and the patient called Marion, who comes from a village in the Ukraine. He's obviously a very simple soul. And the beginning of the film intercuts between Henry, you know, doing a bit of woodwork at home and talking about how he loves wood, and Marion in his little village in Ukraine and Igor getting excited because Henry's about to come on a, another trip. And you just know from the beginning that the paths of these three characters are converging on one another, along with a supporting cast of um, notably a couple of other characters that, that we can talk about later on. But Marion... Uh, this guy from the village suffers epilepsy and the epilepsy is due to a brain tumour. And the question for Henry and Igor is, um, will they operate and the risks of operating? And this is really what the film is about, is about the choices and the dilemmas faced by surgeons of this particular ilk. Like, you know, if you're amputating somebody's arm and you cut the wrong bit off, you know, it's a, it's a disaster, but it's not the end of the world. If you tamper with somebody's brain and you paralyze them from the neck down in the process, you've completely wrecked their lives. And so Henry Marsh's life is a constant tightrope walk between the risks of operating and it going wrong or not being successful and not operating and the inevitable outcome that that will have for the patient. You see this like in exaggerated form in the Ukraine because people, people are not diagnosed early enough in the health system there and by the time they get to Henry, you know, they are in dire straits. Whereas if it was the National Health Service, it might be a little bit simpler. Yeah, there's an, 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 there's an analogy he rips. Sorry. <laughs> there's, a, there's a powerful analogy, he says, Henry Marsh, which is having two revolvers playing Russian roulette with both about the choices of whether to operate or not. So you've got one on one side of the head, do we operate? And the other side of the head, do we do nothing? And it's this, this, this analogy of, of two, two revolvers pointed. And like you say, he's continuously trying to weigh up uh, these moral, this complete moral dilemma and make the most sensible choices. But it, yeah, it's very much like, 
about good people, Henry and Igor, you know, highly skilled, intelligent surgeons trying to do the best in broken systems, broken medical systems, particularly in the Ukraine, with the tools (laughs) that they have. And, you know, you think of, you think of brain surgery, you think of all these high tech tools and stuff. And because of the situation in the Ukraine, Henry Marsh is literally bringing them in a suitcase, bringing spares in a suitcase to Ukraine. And they're also, and then Igor's taking him to the local market to buy drills for wood and stuff. It was quite, quite profound to, to see that exchange of equipment and just the intention behind it, particularly from Henry in terms of just getting, seeing what was happening in the UK and the amount of money being spent on drill heads every week and just salvaging that stuff and literally bringing it with him on, on his back to the, to the Ukraine was quite, quite profound. I mean, it, it sounds like, you know, a solemn film, but it's not a solemn film, actually. It's, it has hilarious moments and ironic moments, one of which is that, you know, Henry takes in this drill bit and says, "We only in England we only use this drill bit once and then it's thrown away and it costs £80. And Igor says, the drill bit I've got, I've been using for 10 years, you know. And Henry says, well, we get through 10 of those in one week. And he says, well, I get through one of them in 10 years. And Henry says, well, that's, you know, the National Health System service for you. The other thing, do you remember that moment? This is the brain surgeon. He's in his hospital in London before he leaves Ukraine, and he's supposed to be typing in his day's movements because, you know, the economic rationalists that run the hospital require him to account for every moment and every dollar that he's spending. And he can't do it. He can't crack the system on the computer. And he just cracks it and says, I can't do this. And he walks out, you know, and you go, well, using a a computer is not brain surgery. (laughs) It's actually, it's actually the only moment in the film when you see him crack it, flip it, because I guess the rest of the time he's got to keep himself contained, but it it takes him trying to use like a spreadsheet and not being able to simply enter data. He genuinely just flips it and and leaves. He's, he's flipping it at the, at the system. At the system. Yeah. More, more so than the, there was, there was a lot of humor in it, but I found it hard to, I found it hard to chuckle at times and I was quite confronted by some of the procedures and stuff. Just um, I, I, I'm not, I don't particularly like to, to watch that. So, so I must admit the, the main, the main procedure I didn't really watch. I just couldn't, I couldn't do it. And I'm all for, I'm very much for, confronting you know i know i know there's such a well-made documentary and there's there's nothing in there just for it's all very carefully put together but i still just didn't want to watch that 
Yeah, you're you're referring to the operation on on Marion Marion's yeah. tumor. Yeah, which is yeah, it, it, it probably goes for a good ten ten minutes or so. Yeah, and is extremely graphic. The interesting thing about it being that you know the technique is that in order so that the brain surgeon can make sure that he's because it's very hard to tell what's tumor and what's brain the only way he knows if he's getting into the brain is by having the patient awake and able to react and you know there's a moment i don't know if you saw it there's a moment in the procedure where he says look watch this and he pokes a bit of marion's brain and his arm goes up in the air you know like and Henry says, this, this is something that I just, that even he finds hard to come to terms with the notion that, that thought is a physical process and our bodily reactions are a physical process, that we are, are our brains and that the mind is actually a physical entity that you can tamper with, you know, and you can disturb the mind. So that kind of physicality of the mind is something that even Henry, in all his years of experience, he's not lost that sense of awe about it. Yeah, that that correlation between mind and body. When he suggests to Marion that he should remain awake. He delivers it in a way that instills trust and it's this trust that that gives the patients the the strength to go, okay, I'll I'll do that then. I'm in your hands, you know. But that in its turn is a is a dilemma because he later on says this is the problem. You be nice to people you're a successful surgeon, they trust you, you know, and they say, go ahead, do the operation. Um, Why should they, you know, why should they have this degree of trust in a situation which is so precarious? And, of course, the other thing about Henry ticking through the film is this sense of guilt he feels about an operation that went wrong on a young girl in the Ukraine. And he's driven at the end of the film to visit, to revisit the family of the girl who he operated on. And as he says in the film, it was just a complete mess and a complete disaster. And that in hindsight, he feels he was swayed by emotion. He was this young girl who he thought he could save and should save, and he wasn't able to save her. But the mother, nevertheless, is kind of grateful to him for sort of trying. So he's constantly voicing these debts, dilemmas, choices um, that he has to make. He has such a lightness to him. He has almost a happiness to him. And that's what really struck me. And I was like, 
he's doing this extraordinarily heavy work. I mean, he, he describes it as what he knows. He's good with his hands. He's always been good with tools, things like that. He has a very practical knowledge and approach to it, but he has this, to me, he had a very much a sense of happiness. And I was trying to put my finger on like, where, where did that come from? And it really, I think it really is that he's essentially doing his best for the greater good and help, trying to help people. And I just, I just felt that he had this, this kind of happiness, you know, Ukraine, it looks like an extraordinarily drab place. <laughs> I've got, like, I've got a Ukrainian friend here and we were like, we should come visit. He's like, don't. he's like, don't like, <laughs> like, it's not only, it's not only building estates, like depressing building estates, but they're surrounded by mud. Like there's not even a carpet. Like it's a very, a very drab place. And, and the, the, the broken medical system there, but his mission his mission to, to go there and do what he can and what he's doing. It seemed, he just seems to have this lightness about him, this happiness, which contradicts these moral battles that he's had to have and these choices that he's made and the things he's got to live, he's got to live with. Yeah. But he also feels an obligation to Igor, I think as a, almost as a son, a father and son, you know, whether Henry has his own son, we don't know. We we see his wife, but we don't meet anyone in his family. But next to that lightness is the heaviness of those scenes. You, you know, you remember the queue in the hospital oh, to gosh. see him? Yeah. You know, they're queued down the corridor for hours on end because they've heard that Henry Marsh is in town. And Igor's telling them, just, you know, sort out your queue. We will see everybody. It will just take time. And then Henry looks at their scans and he tell, has to tell them through Igor that it's too late. They've been diagnosed too late. There is no hope. And there is a particular scene, and this came up in our discussion at the VCA because she's this rapturously beautiful young woman who has hope that Henry she can solve her headaches and when he looks at the scans he says to Igor in English I'm sorry you know it's right through her brain there's no way you can operate she's going to go blind and she's going to die and then Igor has the responsibility of translating in Ukrainian to tell her. And, and Henry says afterwards, it's like, you know, people put their hope in you and you spend your whole time, a lot of the time, uh, avoiding the truth, but trying not to lie to them. So hard to say you're done for, but uh, You've, you've got to give them some hope. But you, you can't lie to them either and say you're going to be fine. And this came up when, when my students saw the film. They said, well, now this, now this girl knows if she sees the film. You know, Igor, Igor, Igor puts her off and says, come back next year and bring your mother. 
you know, bring your family with you and I'll talk to you all. Um, and she leaves. But in the film, we know that she's doomed. So ethically, should that scene be in the film? Because what if she sees it? And the answer to that, having spoken to Jeffrey, is that within six months of shooting that scene, she was back to see Igor and was completely blind and knew that, you know, her days were numbered and therefore was, you know, gave permission. By then, they were still editing the film at that stage. So it wasn't like she was going to see the film and get a shock. Henry Henry's prophecy had already come true. What a massive moral dilemma, as you say, in terms of being 100% upfront about the truth but providing some sort of hope at the same time. And you, you see that Igor can't really bring himself to do that, so he finds a, just finds an yeah. alternative and it's all with... It's all with good intention, but it's yeah, such a tricky, tricky position. But then the the state of the Ukrainian system and the fact that there's not early prognosis, there's not early prognosis, and you know that must be infuriating or frustrating to. Yeah, absolutely. The prognosis for that particular young woman wouldn't have been any different in in Britain, uh, apparently. But you were talking about that light side of Henry. There's that interesting moment where, because, of course, as well as this giving of bad news, we have the happy ending to our story as far as the documentary goes, in that we have the operation on Marion and it's successful and his epilepsy goes away and he he is... He is cured. But as he prepares for that operation, Henry goes, he's transformed. He actually says, um, I'm off to battle now. He says, brain surgery is a kind of blood sport. Uh, He said all surgeons experience this kind of fierce joy, the excitement of what they are kind of doing. But they did do they sorry they did do um they did do karaoke at lunchtime in the hospital run by the KGB. <laughs> That's right. There was karaoke for the staff. <laughs> <laughs> what a contrast! Yeah, there's a lot of those kind of ironies ticking away. It's a film for me that's very layered, you know. And the brain surgery is is kind of hard to watch, but if you can bring yourself to watch it. It's it's a it's a very kind of interesting process because, you know, behind these drapes around um, Marion's head are these drills and blood and veins and everything else, and on the other side is Marion, who's kind of feels slightly queasy at one point, but keeps up his humour pretty well through the whole the whole affair, Um, and then kind of gets up and walks away to his new life and back to his... Cats. No. His cats. Back to his cats. 
Yeah, Caddy. Yep. <laughs> Caddy. At the beginning of the film, when he's thinking about he's going off for his operation, he's stroking his cat as for reassurance, you know. I thought about yeah. that. I did think about that, having watched Keddy. Yeah, the role of the cat. You know, there's a. I just noticed the other day there's a film about stray dogs in Istanbul now. <laughs> I wonder if they're treated the same way or whether they're... Uh... <laughs> I don't know, because I, I had a quick look and it's not the same director. It's a different filmmaker. But it's about, it's about stray dogs in Istanbul. <laughs> So, so there you go. Henry says another little thing towards the end. He says, he says, you've just got to try and help people. Otherwise, what's it all about, really? And he says, you try and sometimes you succeed and sometimes you fail. And that's inevitable. Yeah. I've got the quote here, if you like. <laughs> I mean, you put it very well. But he finishes the film by saying, Sometimes we succeed and sometimes we fail, but we never we never stop trying to make things better. What are we if we don't try to help others? We are nothing at all. And I guess that's that's the message of the film, and that's what the film is is about. You've got to, well, whatever your skills are, you've got to try and leave the world a better place than you found it when you arrived. I could be wrong, but I think that plays a part in his overall happiness um, compared to what he's doing, which is very, very serious, very heavy thing. I th- essentially, he is doing his best with what he has, the skills he has, the tools, the systems he has. He's doing his best to save and help these people. Yeah, and... He he's also I think it, I mean he's a nonconformist. Uh, you know you wonder how many brain surgeons would publicly articulate these kinds of doubts and dilemmas that he has, and his sense of your your feeling about his sense of lightness for me is also a kind of sense of adventure. You know he he says at one stage. Coming to Ukraine, at least it gives me a break from the National Health Service, you know. You would expect con- conventionally the, uh, it to be the opposite way around, that people would want to be in the National Health Service because, you know, everything's much better. But he actually, in, I think he enjoys that challenge and adventure of going off to Ukraine into the unknown. And I don't know, maybe... It's a two-edged sword, but being a bit of a hero, you know, because in, in, in the Ukraine, he is a hero. And in the national health system, he's probably just a cog in a wheel. And when he departs, Igor, it's quite, Igor's quite almost more emotional at the airport, but Igor says, you know, we'll continue to talk about you here as we do until you return. And then Henry's just, he's off. <laughs> Yeah. Well, that film was 2007. So, and the latest update I had was um, Jeffrey Smith was thinking of making a follow up film with him. So he's obviously still working, but he's now um, adventuring in parts of Africa 
as well as the Ukraine. So it seems that he's kind of more and more spending his time in sort of third world um, situations. Amazing, yeah. It's it's pretty it's pretty funny that it you know it opens the film with him just smashing away on wood and saw. I was like, oh god, you know, <laughs> he just banging a box together. But then you realise he's making the box to to ship ship equipment and tools in. Um, so it's rounded nicely. But you're like, okay, brain surgery, he's just sawing away and banging. And <laughs> well, but that's what they do in the operation. He's got the Bosch drill, and you know, he's got the fret saw and the hammer and you know better to be asleep if you possibly can um or better not to know what the hell's going on behind the drape at least um and marion says himself you know when he's told well henry plays it to him like it's like going to the dentist because the only part of your head that can feel anything is is the skin so we give you a local anaesthetic and then you won't feel us. It'll be noisy, but you won't feel anything else that the brain doesn't feel and the skull doesn't feel. So from his point of view, you just go into the dentist. From Marion's point of view, he, it's that or death. You know, he, he, he says at one point, I just I have to find the courage to do this. Um, and he does and it works so the film it has the bittersweet ending of the success with Marion but that's not the end of the film the end of the film is when they go to visit the family of the little girl and I think structurally that's quite interesting positioning because we finish on the doubt we finish on the ambivalence. We don't finish on the success story. It's interesting now watching whether I look at a film more from a technical perspective. With this one, I, I didn't think because I was so engrossed in it, I didn't think a whole lot about the structure or the technical. I was just in it, whereas some of the other films like we said with uh with my octopus teacher you know there was a lot of refinement of that world <clears throat> there was a lot of enhancement of that world from a filmmaking perspective and all that sort of thing yeah but this one it was just it was quite simple to me but i i, I guess obviously there was still a a structure through it yeah, I think there's. Um, I think it's very well crafted and carefully crafted. Like you said at the start, it, you know, you know these characters are going to converge, and also him as a participant and his ability to articulate very complex moral dilemmas and just be very present in his delivery really made him as a central character pretty cool. Their fates converge and their fates depend on this meeting um, between them. Um, and, uh, yeah, he's a pretty amazing guy, Henry Marsh. Definitely. No, great stuff.
you know, it's interesting that both films end with that sense of ambivalence in a way. The Sound of Metal, he's just gazing off into the distance. He appears to have rejected the cochlear implant, but who knows? I mean, it's still there. Um, we don't really know what what his future is. And with Henry, we just know that, you know, it's not not always going to be a happy ending. There is that you never know kind of what's around the corner. So both films, in a way, are very true to life in that sense of not pretending that everything's going to work out hunky, hunky-dory. A parallel for me between the two was they're both about choice and what is the best choice for the best quality of life or what is the choice one should make for the best quality of life. So Rubens met with procedure versus acceptance and and in the English search and it's a whole heap of Russian roulette. <laughs> I suppose the difference is that the sound of metal it's about making a decision, Rubens making a decision for himself. You know, it's in a very internal film about him and his process and his choices for his own kind of identity and benefit, whereas Henry seems to be about choices for the benefit of other people. Um so one one might say, well, you know, Henry is altruistic. You know, he's always thinking of others, which he does seem to be doing, but obviously getting something out of it for himself as well. So it's, it's not as simple as saying he just does things for other people. It's part of his kind of identity. And I suppose in that sense... Um, Ruben wants to get back to playing so that he can give that pleasure that he was giving to audiences, that he can give it to them again. Um, and you can you can understand that if that ability is sort of taken away, it's pretty devastating. And in both cases, I guess technology is a hope. I mean. Brain surgery, I'm sure, has improved and will continue to improve and so will cochlear implants. And one day, Henry's methods will look as medieval as the Ukrainian methods look to him and the cochlear implant, Ruben's cochlear implant, will look as rudimentary as, you know, Especially with the introduction of AI and, you know, them already talking about replacing body parts and genetic stuff. So, yeah, who knows? But it's true. But it's interesting when we picked the two films because I, I didn't necessarily, well, hadn't watched them, but I was like, oh, how could, how could we compare a drama about a drummer and, and, uh, you know, a brain surgeon doco, but there's always, there's always really interesting comparisons between whatever two films you put side by side, I guess. Well, all, all films are documentaries. That's a big statement. 
<laughs> Dramas are documentaries of the imagination and documentaries are films, uh, you know, set in kind of social reality. Um, but they're both documents of a process, aren't they? One, one, one is, is a document of the process of imagining a world and creating that world for the camera, and the other is a document about going out into the real world and recording it, it's capturing it. Yeah, so if, if, if you read Bill Nichols on documentary... He maintains that all films are documentaries of one kind or another. But that's probably just playing with words. <laughs> but I think, you know, it's interesting how documentaries borrow from dramas and dramas borrow from documentaries. And the, the sound of metal does have a kind of luxurious but nevertheless documentary film. It's not like handheld documentary, but it does have that sense. And um, the English surgeon, you know, is structured like a drama, even though it's a documentary. Well, then there's series like the original Office, which incorporate both. The the Office is drama but it's shot as documentary so it's all handheld camera and people keep looking at the camera and speaking to the camera and, yeah, and interviews which worked brilliantly for it, it kind of pioneered that style of of series well to finish up i was also going to suggest to our one or two listeners has it gone up could be three could be three <laughs> <laughs> I scanned. Yeah, what were you going to suggest to them? If they had any questions, particularly filmmaking questions, they could send them in. They could, or they could even suggest films that we might discuss. That is very true. So if anyone wants to put forward a film or a filmmaking question, you can do so at lionfuryproductions at gmail.com. <laughs> Excellent. We hope you enjoyed the show. If you have a film you would like to recommend for us to review or you have any filmmaker questions, please email lionfuryproductions at gmail.com. Do join us for the next episode when we take a look at two docos about men striving. Free Solo, the Oscar-winning film about Alex Honnold's attempt to climb El Capitan without a rope, and The Work, a confronting look at masculinity. See you then.